Hello, and welcome to my show, the Danielle Newton Podcast, where I interview tech founders and innovators to learn the inspiring human stories behind the game-changing tech we use every day. Today's guest is the incredible Megan Smith, award-winning entrepreneur, engineer, and tech evangelist. It would take me about an hour to talk through Megan's illustrious career, but some of what we discuss in this episode includes working on multimedia products at Apple Japan, working on early smartphones at General Magic, 11 years at Google, where she held a VP position, leading new business development, including acquisitions of Google Earth, Maps, Picasa. She also led Google.org and later co-created Women Tech Makers and Solve for X. And this was all before she served as the third US Chief Technology Officer and Assistant to President Obama. In this role, she worked on a myriad of issues from AI, data science and open source to inclusive economic growth, entrepreneurship, structural inequalities, government tech, innovation capacity, STEM engagement and criminal justice reform. Megan is currently founder and CEO of Shift7, a company working collaboratively on systemic, social, environmental and economic problems, finding opportunities to scout and scale promising solutions and solution makers and engage proven tech forward, open, shareable practices to drive direct impact together. Finally, Megan holds a bachelor's and master's degree in mechanical engineering from MIT, where she is now a board member. And Megan is also co-founder of the Malala Fund and UN Solutions Summit. I told you she was impressive. But before we learn more about Megan's story, a couple of quick notes. Firstly, we recorded this episode during the pandemic, and so there are a few background noises that we couldn't completely eliminate, so apologies for that. Secondly, I wanted to talk to you about sponsorship. If you want to sponsor this podcast, please do reach out, and you can have your ad read by me each week at this point of the podcast, and have your message reach over 120,000 founders and business leaders. But now, back to my interview with Megan Smith. Megan, thank you so much for joining me. With the interviewees, I always like to go back in time and start with your childhood. Could you tell me a bit about what it was like growing up in Buffalo, New York? Sure. Uh, It's great to be with you guys. A lot of different things. Uh, You know, Buffalo uh, is right on the border. So I actually grew up both in Buffalo South and also in Fort Erie, Ontario, which is just across the bridge. So really sort of the Great Lakes region. And it's a, it, I was, you know, born in, in 64. Uh, so by the time I was a little kid, it was sort of the early 70s of really big influences of the environmental movements, the civil rights movements. Um, and my parents were doing a lot of things in our local community. So things were going on like the river was on fire, like the Great Lakes were in huge trouble, uh, really dying. And whether, you know, Detroit or Buffalo, Chair Lake Erie, and also, we grew up near a place called Love Canal, which came to light later when I was high school, but it's uh, really like chemical dumping. And, and sort of the tragedy of like this idea of the extractive industries and the earth is sort of infinitely ours and we just sort of use it up and dump it on uh, poor communities, etc. Um, and so we were, I was very influenced by the social change movements. And what was interesting or lucky for me was that I went to a high school that was a magnet school and it was founded after the lawsuits in Buffalo around integration of the schools. We had, uh, you know, Brown versus Board in the US uh, in the 50s and yet, you know, remained separate. And so there were some really important lawsuits. And I remember as a kid, people were lying down in front of buses in Boston and it's just so ridiculous. And we were lucky because um, 
the community of educators in Buffalo created all these wonderful schools. They didn't have money, you know, public schools, uh, which are, I guess, UK state schools, um, but they had incredible entrepreneurial teachers who founded them and administrators. And our school was, uh, was really for motivated kids who came from everywhere in the city and, um, you know, totally integrated experience. And our teachers did something for me Mrs. Saltzman and Mr. Gielen and others, they required science fair. And so you think, well, what's that about? It's really about this idea of active STEM or learning to do science and technology and engineering and maths and just like you would learn writing and arts. So kids who go to the language arts programs, they don't just learn to read, they also learn to write. Uh, and so the same thing with STEM, instead of having kids um, only absorbing facts that others have discovered and doing labs where you know the answer and they can get it right or wrong, you're causing kids to have to discover or invent. And that's a, you know, practice makes permanent kind of opportunity, right? So that's my swimming coach at MIT. I said, you know, so what you do is what you do. And so what we learned uh, at the time, President Carter was putting solar panels on the White House. And so, you know, we had an energy crisis. It was less obvious what was going on with climate change, but the environmental movement was here, the moonshot, you know, getting to the moon and looking back at, at, you know, island earth, our planet, had caused people to really begin to think about um, our home planet as a place that we should take more care of. And so this idea, if you went back in time to like into the 50s, 60s, 50s, 40s earlier, and you said, the, you know, what do you think about the environment? People, most people, other than maybe Rachel Carson and others, would be like, what do you mean, like this room? Or, but after that time, you could talk about the environment and people understood this idea of the ecosystem that we live in, you know, on our planet and, and the various environments we have. And so I was just motivated to try to help, you know, because kids, the key is to get them involved in any subject on something they would care about. And I was called this work on your hometown for your homework. So... Uh, I got to work on science projects on wind and solar distilling and uh, desalination of water and um, all kinds of things that I just thought of based on uh, encouragement from, and so I learned that I could be part of using science, technology, engineering, and maths to make the world better, you know, working in collaboration with others. So that was a really important influence for me because it made me not leave those subjects out as I grew up. And so it brought me forward with uh, all different kinds of things uh, that we do. And my, my mom started the bicycle club for Western New York back in the days when people would be like, what are you doing with that toy? You know, and now we think about bikes as such an important part of our infrastructure for transportation. And she did bicycle policy and worked on, um, you know, the bike routes in Buffalo. She made a, she and others, uh, working with my dad and others, made it so you could ride your bike on the American side from Buffalo all the way to Niagara Falls, the Canadians you know, have beautiful parks and we have a lot of factories. And so they got a right of way just to try to improve the environment and the transportation capabilities. And she started a bike club, which now has hundreds and hundreds of people in it. It's, it's now, I think, had its 50th year. She's 90. So, yeah, I've spoken to a few people who grew up around the same time. And there's a lot of kind of outside influence into how they, you know, all the things that were going on at the time. And you've talked about the environment and, you know, your kind of upbringing. But I think the fact that you said about your school kind of encouraging and almost making, well, you said mandatory to do the science. There, I mean, that's something that, you know, is, really could be done today. It's, um, yeah, it's, it's called act. STEM for people to think about, just think about STEM where you're getting to discover or invent or whatever. And, you know, we used to host 
uh, science fair in the White House and have kids from kindergarten and first grade all the way up to the seniors in high school with these amazing projects. You know, and, and if you got to practice that, like there's a wonderful moment with President Obama, he was with, uh, he was with these kids from Oklahoma and these little girls. And what's wonderful about this is they're from every different background, like our school, different races, and they're all first and second graders. They're wearing capes, you know, and they're, mm. they've made a page turning robot. Uh, and he's asking like, why you do this? And he's like, well, we have to help people, you know? And, and so he says, uh, so they've learned that you can work together. You can have fun. You can help people using invention. And so he asked them, like, how did you guys do this? And they said, well, we had a brainstorming. <laughs> and then said, okay, really? And then what did you do? We made some prototypes. <laughs> now think about that. If that was a fluency for kindergarten and first grade, the kind of capabilities and confidence, more important confidence people would have about just getting on with making things. I mean, today, the, this week, hopefully the helicopter will take off on Mars. And there's a piece of the Wright brothers plane. But one of the things that people don't know is that it's really the family Wright. And that Susan Wright, their mom, the mom of uh, uh, Orville and Wilbur and Catherine Wright. Um, Catherine was like the COO. She ran the bicycle shop. She was a big part of the team. And the French actually gave the Legion of Honor to all three children, not just the boys. But the sexism of the day is there. And so the story's not told well. But Susan like the people who encouraged the kids I was just telling was a mechanical genius, Susan Wright, the mom of these people. And she would make toys. If you've ever seen the film, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, mm. you know, it's like that dad. And she taught her children design thinking and had a flourishing inventive household. And so if we all knew that everyone does this stuff, if we knew the story of Susan and Wilbur and Orville and Catherine, and we had the practice makes permanent experiences at school, like I was so lucky to have. Um, I think we could solve a lot more problems together faster because we would not leave certain subjects off the table for certain humans. I totally agree. I think one of the things that desperately needs working on is just reforming education. But um, I want to ask you, so talking about inventing, when did you first realize that you could invent something? I was working on a solar house. Um, just a demonstration, uh, I think it's like eighth grade. And uh, I had this idea of like, how could you, just how to design it. And so I went, you know, we didn't have really the internet. So I went on the bus downtown where we had a bigger library, you go to downtown Buffalo library. And so I could have an entire shelf of books about solar. And I remember just sitting and reading some of the basic principles. And I mean, that's what engineering is. You're taking science and science and other kinds of principles, arts principles and you're applying them. And so I just started to figure out how to do that with this uh, project. And I, it's really confidence building for kids to do that because you realize you not only is this something that's done, but you could do it. And so, you know, it's like an apprentice journey mastery path that anyone can be on if we sort of open the door that way. And, and to your point about education, it's really extraordinary to see how many teachers and administrators are already doing this, but they're not as visible. So one way to reform education is actually to make those who have already reformed more visible so others could join them. Um, and so, you know, we were, that happened in my school from my eighth grade and ninth grade, our biology and our eighth grade science teachers who were doing this taught the other teachers and pretty soon it was school wide and the key was mandatory because most kids wouldn't have chosen to do that project, right? Mm -hmm. They might go to the sports groups or whatever, which you also want to do. 
but you could also, you know, just require kids to have much broader experiences. So they sample these things and they build their confidence in any sphere. So I was really lucky to get that confidence um, and activity. Uh, and then there were other kids and because it was mandatory, the kids in our school who were doing science fair were a completely diverse cross section of uh, the community, not the typical stereotype group of, you know, tending to be the majority race males of that country. So in the case of US, there would be white, white boys who are wonderful and there's other people. So let's have everybody, you know, be doing this, not just the, that group. We also had the draft for the math team. So our math teachers required people to be on the math team. And a lot of kids opt out of the experiences like that. Um, they would never think of doing that. And so they just made us do it. So we did it. It's really interesting because also I think we're in a different time now where it's really hard. I think if you try, especially in this country, to make kids do STEM subjects and maths and everything uh, and um, put such a focus on it being mandatory, I, I think there'd be a bit of a revolt. You know what I mean? Like we're so keen to to please everyone these days. And I think just these are fundamental skills that should be added to the kind of curriculum. And it's not. I mean, and I know it's different, I'm sure, in America, but but you're right about trying to unearth the people that are working on it and using holding them up as an example, right? Yeah, I call it scout and scale. So it's much easier to find someone already fixing something. Either they've fixed it regionally or it's promising or whatever than to do everything. So if you just look around, it's actually how the venture capitalists work. They don't make Amazon or Twitter or whatever. They find these people, you know, Jack or Jeff or whatever, and they support their innovation and their team growing and their coaching. Unfortunately, it's very biased to certain groups of people. Um, and time, if we can do well, we'll, we'll like enable everybody who has their great work uh, to bring. But one thing, like in the UK right now, uh, there's Dr. Sue Black who does uh, Tech Moms and she does extraordinary work with elementary school kids in programs that we call Computer Science for All. And you know, if you work with second and third graders, her insight is that they know how to read already enough that they can code just like you might teach them cooking. And which is a set of instructions and variables, right? The ingredients and how to do it, which is the same as coding. And so getting this into the hands of kids, Raspberry Pi is UK invention, Arduinos, these, these boards and chips are so cheap now. You know, they have kids taking a computer board, like the board in their phone and seeing the inside as if you had broken open your phone and making the lights go on and off and just experiencing that. Uh, here in the US, the Muscogee Creek uh, tribe, the Native Americans in Oklahoma are teaching robotics at Head Start, which is our three and four-year-olds. And they're doing it because they want the kids to have a fluency with this, you know, how to program a little device to make it, you know, connect um, elephant to E or whatever on the pattern. So it's, it's simple stuff, but it's exposing them and not assuming that somehow they couldn't do that. Uh, another one that I love in the UK is um, Sherry Cotu, who created Silicon Valley Comes to the UK with others, Reid Hoffman and stuff, is, uh, has created something called Founders for Schools. And it came from an insight of a group of us going to speak at a girls' school who have been like you, you know, you did the female innovators at work, the, the visibility challenge, and that these young women wouldn't have seen women founders of, of technology companies or other companies. And so we went together, a bunch of us, to talk to the kids. And uh, at the end of the school year, the head of school called Sherry to say, you know, on our surveys, this event is one of the most popular events coming through from the kids. 
They had no idea that they could have a career like this. And so Sherry founded this idea called Founders for Schools. They have a, a software, a simple software like Eva, combined with a software that pulls from LinkedIn. And they, the, the pitch is, in the time you can make a cup of tea, you can invite entrepreneurs to your classroom. And so it pulls found, the word founder from uh, LinkedIn, uh, from your region within your postal code. And then it helps teachers invite these folks to class. And there's really a one hour. And this intervention is, what is your company? What did you make? Why, what's your passion? Why did you make this? Um, what did you want to do when you were a kid? And how did you get from there to here? And this group of people, which is gender balanced and hopefully racially balanced, integrated, um, are speaking to children. And apparently in some of the classes, this intervention has happened with hundreds of thousands of kids now through this tool. It's doubling the STEM selects for mm -hmm. A-levels. So this is a really interesting intervention. So again, scout and scale, find what's already working or promising and then scale that. So this kind of thing that we got, which was to practice at solving problems and that everyone in class was included, not stereotyping it, was really essential for me. And then of course, to see problems in the community and be able to do something about them, both the role modeling from my parents and other leaders in the community around the environment, around civil rights, around um, solution making, role model solution, like there's a problem, we could fix it. Let's work together. It's very intractable. Okay, let's, you know, bird by bird, as Annie Lamont says in her book, like bit by bit, you could solve it. And then having the experience of seeing things solved, or at least on the path is really impressive for young people, because then they can see that they could do that. And, and that actually reminds me of the point because I was going to ask you about, I know that you came from a family of engineers and I guess that in some way would have impacted you as well. What happened? You went to MIT as a mechanical engineer. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. And what, when you were there, what was the kind of work that you, that you, the stuff you were studying, like you designed and built uh, and raced a solar car across the Australian app. I mean, this is amazing. It was everything's so fun. Like, um, you know, this whole pack of kids and the faculty, like people are very, very passionate there and uh, and just, you know, obsessed in a really positive way with like how to, like curiosity. I just tell them the, the expression of the school is mens et manus, which is mind enhanced. And so these these schools, these technical schools, I don't know about Imperial College. I know that Carnegie Mellon, they're founded during the second industrial age you know, sort of post-Civil War and they're founded, or actually MIT was founded during the U.S. Civil War, but it's really this time when things like National Geographic, the National Academies of Sciences, a place called Chautauqua, like, which is like a TED conference from the 1800s. The, the idea is that people begin to realize that um, these industries, these things, they start to train for them. And the idea of MIT is a, a teaching laboratory. So a little bit less of sort of reading and uh, sort of that kind of an education, more traditional uh, university education, more into, you know, a chemistry lab. You're not watching the lecture. I was just actually reading the paper from Ellen Swallow Richards, who's uh, MIT's first woman graduate. And uh, she said that she's there at the 1911 50th year symposium, which was on April 10th. And that's a recent date for us. What she's saying is instead of watching the lecture do it, you have the students in the lab trying to figure it out with you. And it's actually a much better way to learn, right? Is to, people sometimes call it instead of um, sage on the stage, coach on the side. Move learning more into a sports kind of metaphor where you're coaching and the students are doing it with you. And so that was the idea of MIT and it's, it's uh, you know, and other people were doing it. 
Um, I was also reading Robert Taylor, who's the first African-American graduate of MIT, who was an architect and went on to work with Booker T. Washington, the great civil rights leader. And they built the Tuskegee Institute and really brought this idea of mind in hand, learning with George Washington Carver, who uh, saved the United States from malnutrition at the time with his lab and his rotating crop peanut uh, explorations and stuff. We talked about that. But the point is, is that this idea of an education that, again, back heart sort of echoing back to my high school experiences and my middle school experiences, learning by doing. And that's really what, what that school is about. And I got to do the commencement address in 2015. And I told them that I felt like it's not only men's at modest, but it's men's at modest at core and heart and love that technology in its greatest form is actually about love. In, in three ways to think about that. One is curiosity and obsession. Like, how does the world work? What is this nano thing? Like, what is, you know, chemistry and biology? Like, what becomes sort of human knowledge and curiosity and, what, and joy that all young people are born with and what continues for some if they get encouraged. And then the second one is really ingenuity or engineering, like applying that uh, and making things and solving problems and really being in service with solutions. And the third in community which is really a community that encourages and accepts. And that, that that's when technology is great. And you mentioned a little bit, um, you know, when we first spoke before we started a little bit about General Magic, which is uh, an early company that failed that I got to work on that was about smartphones. And, you know, the early internet was very much about connecting us, you know, and, and this idea of connection and the positive side of technologies, which is really what's so urgent for us to keep moving towards and try to reduce negative impacts of technology in my youth, you know, sort of environmental disasters that we had misunderstood about the ecosystems we're in and how they work and how we should work much more like the indigenous people um, of earlier, you know, to be part of the earth rather than extracting and dumping into the earth. Those kinds of ways of thinking are really urgent. And so I was lucky to be in a really wonderful learning community in MIT and I did mechanical engineering. I worked in a bike shop and did lots of things as a kid. And so I really loved, I love mechanical things. And so that's why I leaned that way. And also it was an area that was doing work on solar energy. Um, as President Reagan came into power, the money dried up for uh, things like all this. There was a solar working solar house on the MIT fields and there were a lot of professors. They, they ended up not moving forward. And so I wish that had happened. President Carter had structured the Department of Energy for what would have solved a lot of climate issues by now. Um, but unfortunately, you know, policy inverted and we ended up with um, a much more oil focused administration. And so the National Science Foundation and other kinds of government funding that would have been the basic research monies. In fact, my friend Ali Sachs um, was going to work on green energy and solar things. And so he, there was not really funding, it became a hobby thing. People continued, of course, to work, but it wasn't funded at scale. And he actually moved to manufacturing and invented the 3D printer. So he made a great contribution, which is extraordinary. And at the same time, what if we could have had that kind of environmentally centric innovations at the time where we would be different now if yeah. that could have come? Yeah, it would have been interesting to see. And hopefully we get back towards that goal. On this point, my hope is that the young school strikers will team with the young STEM kids together, in fact, some of them are them, to not only push policy, but also invent together and sort of get really clever about data science and push all the subjects. I call it play the whole orchestra. 
on all the hard problems. Don't leave part of the tools out and the teammates. Yeah, so I love your enthusiasm for the way things are going, and I'm very much in line with you. Um, but just quickly, let's go back to General Magic because you brought it up there. Can you tell me, because I, I think you met Bill Atkinson when you worked at Apple in Japan, is that right? And then how did you get the role at General Magic and what were you doing there? Yeah, so I, um, you know, I ended up uh, doing mechanical engineering undergraduate and I got to work with an amazing professor, Woody Flowers, who is one of the, who, who's, uh, unfortunately he passed away last year, but he's, he's a really design innovator. And uh, he created FIRST Robotics with Dean Kamen, he was the chairman. And he talks about a thing called gracious professionalism, which is teaching young people really how to be in collaboration. And uh, the highest award for this robots contest that they do with kids like sports and tech is about helping others, not winning the contest. Winning the contest is good, but helping others. So I had amazing professors and, and folks at MIT, and I ended up going over to the Media Lab which was a really early form. Nicholas Negroponte had created this lab really, and, and they continue sort of looking at intersectional uh, technologies and really beginning the internet. I worked on how you could feel what you see on the screen using haptics and sort of think of it uh, like a, a force feedback joystick and uh, did that work. And then as I graduated, um, I knew about a job at Apple Japan in Tokyo and ended up getting that job and going, it was a one-year internship, but I ended up staying two years. And during that time I met Bill, you know, Bill was part of the original Macintosh team with Steve Jobs. Uh, he and Jonah Hoffman, Susan Carey, Andy Hertzfeld, all of them had worked together. And I would note that the early Mac team was much more gender balanced than people know. Um, and Joanna had been a physics grad at MIT and was really Steve's sparring partner on product and really thinking through all those things. You've seen her in the film, Kate Winslet won the Golden Globe for playing her very accurately, although I would say that the writing is a little, a little bit gender biased in that film. And so we can come back to that. But I was able to meet Bill and he said, hey, we should work together sometime. You know, Bill was in Japan because we were doing a thing about hypermedia or multimedia, really internet technologies and a day on NHK television um, about all those technologies. And he was opening the day with a Buddhist monk uh, leader, you know, and, and talking about uh, what the future could be with an interconnected network. And he had written a software called HyperCard at the time, which is not unlike kind of how the web works where you can just make things yourself. You can learn to make them uh, multiple media things. So video and text and graphics and things would be all together. And it was a bit like index cards software. We could make kind of the equivalent of a web page and share it with others. And so got to know him. And then um, as they were creating General Magic, I ended up going from Tokyo back to Silicon Valley, and that was the start of doing that. And I was a young mechanical engineer. So in this company, General Magic, which is really way too early, but the beginning of smartphones, this idea that people had, um, Mark Peratt was one of our founders, and he had had this idea of a thing you could, call the pocket crystal paradigm, something you could physically carry around that would be connected with others. And it would have not only sort of workforce things like, uh, you know, like address books or those kinds of things, but it would really be connected. And it was a creativity interconnection tool was the idea of it. And I think the team that did the Mac, you know, when Andy and Bill met uh, Mark and understood his vision, he had gone to Apple from Aspen Institute and, and Joanna um, and Susan Kerr. A lot of people don't know Susan Kerr, but Susan is the person who's responsible for almost all the graphics you look at all day, all the icons. She's the original artist for the Mac that goes to Windows, that goes to like everything we do. If you look at our phones, graphics. 
they all worked together. And when they saw this vision from Mark, I think they felt it was the next thing. And so they spun out of Apple into this company, General Magic. And it's from that Arthur C. Clarke quote that any, any technology sufficiently advanced is indistinguishable from magic. And this idea of general magic is something that empowered you, that you could take with you, um, that will connect you to others. And I, I even remember Andy Hertzfeld later, um, I was working on some models and he said, make sure you have the camera that pops on. And then he kind of lifted up his hands. He says, because people are going to take pictures and send them all over the world. <laughs> and this is 1992. So it was so, such a forward thinking company to the point where actually it didn't, it didn't end up being able to work. What exactly, can you just give a rundown quickly of what you were working, what elements you were working on, and then what it felt like to be part of a company that you poured your entire life into? Because I think everyone was working around the clock then and what it meant when it didn't, you know, when it didn't work out. Sure. Um, you know, like if you think about the physical parts, like if you even look at your phone right now, you know, it's got a power connector and a touch screen and a, and a regular screen, you know, the LCD screen so you can see, you know, all the graphics. It's got a camera. It's got, you know, these different components. It's got the physical plastic. It's got the chipboard inside with different kinds of electronics and, and things on it. I'm a mechanical engineer, so I was working on the physical device. So, you know, what size touchscreen, what size, you know, what, what kind of technologies for being able to touch the phone and, and what should it have a button or 20 buttons and should it, you know, how big should the screen for images be and how can we do all these things? So I was physically designing with others. Um, there's a guy named Wendell Sanders who he and his son, Brian, have had a chip in almost every Apple product from uh, the very beginning with Wendell to Brian with the iPod and iPhone. Um, and so they were in this team with, with Walt and Leland and Amy and um, Laurie and Tuan. And that, so we were the hardware team. So think of physical device. And then there was the software team, uh, Tony Fidel, who created that, that iPod later with Steve Four Companies later. Uh, Andy Rubin, Andy Droid, Android uh, was there. Uh, and so people, it took 20 years, but eventually people got this vision going. And they were more on the software side, including low-level code you know, that speaks to the chips, uh, as well as uh, uh, creating app, uh, a layer so that you could write apps for it. So we really had this vision of an ecosystem of apps and third-party developers and a network made by all the, what are now the mobile carriers and the telcos um, and others like that, and a wireless network. Um, Motorola was part of it. Sony was part of it. Um, so many companies. And, my job was first a lot of this uh, reference design mechanical engineering because the companies were going to physically make the product, but we had to make versions of it as well as prototypes for all the engineers to build software on. Um, and so there's this film about it that uh, really exploded uh, and is, is highly watched. And I think it's because it's a story, as you said, of something we all have. Many people have, not everybody, but many people have uh, mobile phones. And so it's a story of the beginning of that. Um, it says, I think, in the beginning when it first switched on. And it's also a story, a very human story of trying to do something, but maybe taking on too much. In the world, it wasn't ready yet. The physical hardware and device, like physically, things were way too big. You would never carry these big things around, you know, like carrying around. One time somebody actually took an actual brick and mailed it to us from one of the partners. So they're like, <laughs> too heavy and big. I think it was Motorola, I can't remember. Um, and then, uh, you know, the network people, no one had email, like very few, some people did, obviously the internet was in the universities, but people didn't really know what we were talking about. Like, why would you carry this thing around? 
Why would you bring this thing with it? Why would I want to be connected all the time? And so, you know, it just took much longer. And so what it's, Amy has mentions in the movie, she says, uh, Amy Lindbergh, she says, you know, it didn't work and then it went supernova. And really everybody scattered and started doing all kinds of extraordinary things that just continued and eventually, you know, whatever, a couple of decades later, here we are. It's a crazy time, isn't it? Because when you do watch the movie, I mean, obviously you were right there in the midst of it, but for others, it really is a time of great innovation that just was ahead of its time. But when it did, I know Tony says, Tony Fidel says in the movie, like how, it, you know, really took it, something out of him uh, because you guys had really believed in it. You were very well, you know, you kind of became like a family to each other. You were there all the time and then it just kind of fell apart. So what, how did you feel when you realized that it wasn't going to be, how did you feel? Yeah, it's just so, it's devastating. And you also feel badly for all the partners and like, have you brought people into some kind of thing where, you know, it's just, it, it wasn't our time, you know, yet. And so it's a good learning to go through that because that's how life is, you know, like you, you, but you have to keep trying. You know, so I'm a, Andy said this and I took, I took it from him. He said, I said, I'm a card carrying optimist <laughs> and I really, I'm like that. Right. It doesn't mean that you're not looking at the very intractable hard problems. You know, for example, take the internet. Now there's extraordinary challenges, uh, devastating challenges around the business models, which are extracting our data and creating a surveillance nightmare for everybody. You know, the Europeans thankfully are leading on policy um, and we have a lot more work to do, but can, can we evolve these business models to make them much kinder to all of humanity? Can we get more of these data sets, which are so imbalanced? Can we make sure we don't ship a product before it's good for everybody? You know, this face recognition technologies that people are putting out there. First off, do we want that in general? And then if we do have it, shouldn't it work for everyone equally? We shouldn't ship it just because uh, those with, uh, pale skin who are mostly male are identified at hundred percent and everybody else, especially women of color at like 70% and we still ship it, you know, and then we're surveilling people. So th this, this balance of technology is really, really um, urgent to get to. And so I guess part of thinking about those general magic days is what, what we were hoping would happen versus what happened. And uh, there's a, there's chiseled into U S national archives is a, is the phrase eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. And so I think in a lot of ways, we, it's not unlike, you know, you know, you're in England, we can think about um, the first industrial age, you know, with uh, Ada Lovelace and Darwin and um, Dickens, uh, you know, Mary Shelley wrote Frankenstein. And when she wrote Frankenstein, it's about what we're doing right now. Should we raise the monster or not? How should these technologies, who gets to make them? Who are they for? Who's included? Is, are there ghost workers like Oliver? The play from Dickens is not unlike, you know, the people today who are um, recycling, you know, waste from electronics, you know, in a very poor town somewhere, destroying their health and, you know, high incidence of cancer, or the young people in the DRC who are, mining coltan, you know, as child slave labor in order to make this stuff happen. Like this is an ecosystem. And wouldn't it be great if uh, we can really actually think holistically about 
what we're doing and how to include folks as part of the design of what we do versus extracting yet again um, and paying attention to the messages from the past, including not erasing the women. You know, you do a lot of work on visibility of women, people of color, everybody's been innovative for the whole history of humanity. It's just some people get evaporated and some people get the textbook written about them. It's, yeah, based on that point, actually, I know you said earlier about there being kind of a diverse team around Steve Jobs. Uh, that is definitely something. Up until I, there was this book um, a photographer had done, uh, Doug Menoes, and he's done this incredible, I think it's called Fearless Genius book. And it's, you know, I've discovered people, it's all basically the early days of Apple, uh, looking at uh, IBM, looking at various different tech companies, various Silicon Valley companies. And actually, when I look at these photos, I think that's not how the tech industry has been presented to us historically. You know, and that's why it's so important that we have these stories. Uh, and that's, you know, another reason to do the podcast as well. But OK, so I know we're going to run out of time, but I just wanted to briefly touch on Google because from General Magic, you went to Planet Out and then you went to Google. And I know that there you were working on Google X. Can you tell me about I, I think you led the team that created Google Glass. Can you tell me more about your time there and the kind of a uh, couple of the problems you were trying to solve? Yeah, actually, there's a bunch of info about me and Google X, but I only worked there for at Google X at the end. I was really mostly at Google in the core of Google itself. I led new business development. Uh, and so what we were doing is working with engineers and product managers across the whole company on every new thing we made. Anytime we we're making new products, everything from, you know, when, when we were doing book search. So to scan all the books in the world, we would cold call, you know, the, all the publishers and and get started on those conversations about how we could collaborate together and you know, scan the libraries. Um, any kind of technology licensing, like um, if you use uh, Google Meets or any of those things, the signaling codec underneath that, that allows the voice layer to go, like licensing that technology. So I had a team of, um, you could think of them like in a startup, you often have the tech founder and a kind of techie business founder. So they were like the techie business founders of all the different products, um, working in collaboration with these fabulous engineers and product managers and other colleagues on everything we did all over the world. Um, and so I did that for um, all, nearly a decade. And I also, as part of that, um, the teams were blended for uh, acquisitions in the early days. So I did the acquisition of Google Earth and Maps and Picasa spreadsheets. And the point there is about talent, about half of the products at Google were ones where they had been invented in another small startup and we were able to welcome those teams like the Google Earth team in to have their vision grow at Google. So we would bring those teams in, which was an amazing experience to work with that talent. So I did mostly that work and some specialty projects here and there. And then um, I there was a point where we were reorganizing google.org. And so I restructured it to have more engineers. So we did things like um, flu trends or uh, um, where you can you can look at flu emerging in a city, just looking at um, private, like not private data, but like aggregated search traffic. So people search for things. And so you could tell real time if flu was emerging in a region, uh, which is helpful for pandemic like things, as long as you're not, you know, never look at people personally. So it's just a general trend, um, like, like you know, Google Trends. Um, we did uh, Google Earth Engine, which is using the compute power of the back end of Google together with mapping to look at environmental challenges um, and be able to look at satellite imagery over time for, so Rebecca Moore was leading this in the geo teams. And so could we use the resources that we had 
um, to help with water and deforestation and other kinds of visibility across time and bring those tools forward. So really applying engineering into uh, these kinds of things. And around the time I went to UN Women as a public delegate, met Gina Davis, which is where I got this idea to, she's doing extraordinary work on measuring media because it's highly imbalanced who gets to speak, uh, who, who gets which lines, how many people you see, who's front on camera. And so she was doing this amazing data work around children's television and showing the imbalance and making change because people don't, it's unintended bias as opposed to you know, the creative intent. And it was helping change the industry. And I asked her how she was doing that. And they were using, you know, graduate students were counting and using Excel stuff. I said, we could use machine learning and data science and, you know, Siri, Alexa, these kinds of natural language processing. And so we started collaborating and work with, she works with, uh, we were able to get a grant from Google for her to begin work with USC. So just a range of technology for humanity work. And then uh, I did go to Google X and I didn't actually work that much. I coached on some of those projects. I did, I was not in Google Glass, just helped them from time to time. But I really focused on something different, which was establishing women tech makers, which is works on visibility, community and resourcing uh, for women, technical women, because technical women are so invisible, even though there are tons of elite technical women at all levels for all of history, including now. So did that work. We also worked on Solve for X, which is uh, helping innovators who were not at Google accelerate their work. And that's had turned into work like the United Nations Solutions Summit now and other things. So that's what I did there. And then I got this call from the White House to come um, serve as the United States Chief Technology Officer, which I was honored to do. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. What? Tell me, how does this work? Do you just literally answer the phone one day and it's someone saying, do you want to work here? How does it work? You know, we were working with some of the teams in Africa uh, and I was in um, Nairobi and uh, in Kampala and I got an email that's from Todd Park, who was CTO at the time, wanting to talk to me. And I didn't even know there was a CTO. President Obama started this job. There's been a science advisor since uh, FDR. Um, and actually, technology has been part of like most governments, you know, from the beginning, uh, just different capacities building. And the, the idea of the CTO is to help the president and their team harness the power of data, innovation, and technology on um, behalf of the nation and the world. And it's it's really bringing these digital technologies and having a person like a Surgeon General um, who knows medicine, someone in the government who's fluent in that to work together with other colleagues. It's really, a, I call it a plus one job because you team up um, with each group, whether it's working on foster care technologies or you know anti-terrorism things or whatever it is. So, I uh, came and it was amazing and incredible people came. We were able to think about civic technology. You know, why should the industry have, you know, only these capabilities? Shouldn't governments have them? And actually we modeled, um, Todd had modeled with Jen Palka, who created Code for America, the government digital service from the UK is the model for United States digital service, which is a group of, of techies who come serve their country and team up with others. We had over 500 Americans who built Dropbox and Amazon and Twitter and all these companies come serve their country. And it's something most governments are trying to do now is to have a rotation space for tech. Obviously every government has tech people like in the US we have NASA and, and IT teams and, and you know defense and that, but this is tech people sort of in the main policy room working on not only technology policy and policy for technology, but also working capacity building the government itself and capacity building the people together for you know, inclusive future of work or more just society. 
you know, you can have data science, you know, for school lunch, just like you can have a self-driving car. In your three years there, I know that you worked on a lot of projects. What are you most proud of? God, I, I just, I think it's really the opportunity to work with such extraordinary colleagues to add tech and innovation capabilities into so many different rooms. And, you know, I'll give you like two quick examples. One is that U.S. Census, we created something called the Opportunity Project. And so today on your phone, you have apps for things like the weather, like a billion dollar industry on government data or mapping, like we can go places, we can see traffic. All that data comes from our governments, but there's not apps on top of things for related to poverty a lot, like housing, affordability and mobility. So we would say, housing and urban development team, what data do you have? And then instead of them wanting an app from us, we'd say Airbnb, Redfin, Zillow, and startups, what do you got for this problem? Housing mobility, housing affordability. You know, So you could really get an app or a, an ecosystem, not only General Magic, on top of these digital technologies on behalf of every department in government, which is really every topic in humanity. And shouldn't we have for the most marginalized people, elite technologies. Why should we know where every Amazon package is and we don't know where the children on our border have gone? Like this is crazy. And it's because humans aren't um, in, they're siloed in disciplines and not working together in a way that they could. And we can fix that by, uh, it's almost like community organizing innovation. And President Obama really brought that forward and it, it has continued throughout the Trump and now Biden administrations. That's wonderful to be part of something like that, isn't it? And I know that when Trump came on board, I think the world actually at large kind of was disappointed in the way things were going. So it's interesting to, to hear it continued. Um, what leadership lessons do you think you learned during your time working with President Obama? You know, like I said, he's really a community organizer in a way uh, with this idea that he teaches of like, we can solve anything if we get everybody involved. You know, one of the things you and I work on, uh, we worked with him on a thing called Image of STEM. You know, what you see is what you believe is, you know, who's included. And, uh, you know, he had the most diverse team I'd ever seen. And it was one of the things I struggled with in Silicon Valley is how imbalanced it is and unfair. Um, and people really aren't prioritizing um, inclusion. Uh, they're prioritizing shipping products. And there's just a huge amount of stereotyping and bias. You know, if, if I tell you there's going to be a TV show about innovation, we're going to mostly see certain characters as opposed to innovators everywhere. I mean, I was um, able to work with Malala Yousafzai when we knew she would be well, and we created the Malala Fund because Malala is a genius innovator who knows how to work on girls' education and all education for young people and can lead us just as much as Elon Musk can. And we need all our innovators and to really scout and, and help them scale, whether they're commercial innovators, social innovators, um, nonprofit, civic, whatever, you know, and, and looking into history to see that, you know, let's take tech, that Ada Lovelace invented algorithms at the time of Darwin, you know, that Ida B. Wells was working on justice technologies. She won the Pulitzer Prize last year. Her work was in the 1880s and 90s, that Jane Addams, um, was, you know, had data science. Jane Addams, you probably never heard of her, but she won the Nobel Peace Prize for inventing social work. She was considered one of the dangerous, most dangerous people in America at one point. But she moved into industrial age Chicago and really started collaborating with the community. And there's extraordinary data science that she had. So yes, smart city, how about wise community? 
or a smart, wise city that includes everyone and doesn't redline. Um, so it really harkens back for me to a lot of my roots from Buffalo. How about we include everyone? And I think President Obama was very much about, you know, I, I resonate with this. I feel like, you know, like that movie, The Sixth Sense, I see people, I see talent. <laughs> we see talent. He sees talent. And so I could see how he was uh, bringing people together and really helping people hear each other across disciplines. Um, you know, he read 10 letters every day uh, from um, different people who wrote. And actually White House Correspondence became a really critical user testing capability that the different tech teams use. They try to find letters from the correspondence team for the worst things like veterans trying to sign up for healthcare and they're using some crazy old version of Adobe and blah, 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 you know, like, and then go find that person and have them user test until you could get it right that all veterans could sign up for healthcare quickly just as much as they might buy something, you know, on the internet from, you know, Amazon or someone. Shouldn't all the websites work that well if we have people in our country who can make something like that? 100%. Um, you've talked a lot about community and I know it's at the heart of what you do. Can you tell me more about Shift 7 and what you're working on now? Yeah, and a lot of keyboards, Shift and 7 means and, yeah. uh, not all of them. And so the idea of Shift 7 is really, can we can we solution make through inclusion? So it really is, can, you know, I was in Silicon Valley, got to work on amazing things, but I found that we, we were missing some topics. And so when I went many topics to government, I found that we were too rare in the room. And so I really wanted to stay where tech people are a bit rare. I love my colleagues and I always recommend to young technical people, go where there's tons of us and advance the field. You know, go to Wakanda, uh, or, you know, be a MacGyver and, and drive, you know, but, but at the same time, go where you're rare because you can learn so much from these other experts who really know what they're doing but maybe the, some of the methods are a little more dusty and you can contribute a lot with these, these sort of data science. And, and we see this now, young people um, have started something called Coding It Forward, which is an internship for college age students to come into government. Um, and so I remember talking to a young person, he said, wow, I, you know, we saw the big com companies and we saw the startups and then we thought those were the only jobs. And then we saw you guys at government, we realized we could come serve you know, our country and do this and get into nonprofits and this technology is for anything, right? So it's for any person and it's for any topic. And it's quite urgent that more of humanity gets included in the conversations. When you see something horrific, like the challenges that hurt, happen for the Rohingya community from Facebook's uh, use of Facebook, why wouldn't they go get technical people from the Rohingya community to come join the Facebook team at the highest level as an SVP of engineering and start working on those problems just at the same priority level as monetizing something? And that's the kind of attitude we need to shift to. Um, you know, we really need these technologies to include each other and to respect each other at the design table and drive for equality and inclusion. I'm on the board of MIT and we're having a special session this week about diversity, equity, and inclusion conversation about how we can accelerate the inclusiveness of these long-standing stereotypes and biases that live large in all of society. And isn't that a challenge that we want to take on as well as other colleagues around the world? With Shift 7 and all of the work that you've done, it's always been about collaboration for you. It's about getting people together from diverse teams and working on the important work, the work that needs to get done now. 
What's the most pressing thing for shift seven or for you personally that you want to see fixed? Yeah, I always think of it as bringing methods forward because the more surface area of innovators that we have who come from so many different backgrounds, the more things will be fixed. Like many, many hands make a light load. And so um, I think both about adults and children. So with adults, there's so many people here today, you know, who could have more opportunity, who already are doing extraordinary things. We do this United Nations Solution Summit, where we just ask on the internet, done it for five years with uh, the UN, who's already fixing the sustainable development goals? What are you doing? Where, where is this? And we, you know, last year, 2019, we didn't do it because of COVID, but uh, uh, last year, but the, we got like 1,400 submissions from 141 countries in three weeks. And 400 of them were people who wanted to be part of the committee. So think about Wikipedia. Like people are passionate about the topics that they love. They're doing extraordinary things. Can we use the digital technology to better cross-organize ourselves to really help everybody flourish? And in this case, we were able to um, bring, you know, 10 genius entrepreneurs to the UN to present and to be accelerated by a community of ecosystems, you know, just like any kind of network ecosystem, it takes a community to help innovators. They are gender balanced and geo balanced and topic balanced and racially balanced. And there's plenty of people from every place. So that's with the grownups. And then with the kids, can we do this at school, you know, as part of your work? Can you work on your hometown for your homework? Like I got to do. And whether it's learning to write poetry today, Amanda Gorman, um, her poem, The Hill We Climb, which is so, so uh, incredible, is um, I think the highest selling poem in the history of poetry since like, I don't know, 20, 30 years, you know, whether it's a poem or whether it's an invention or solution or whatever, or, or community organizing or a school strike or whatever these young people want to get up to, you know, how do we help them practice this at school? How do we make sure their textbooks become much less biased about sharing that everybody is amazing, especially including indigenous leadership during this change of climate, uh, climate change? I don't think we will solve climate change challenges without remembering our history of uh, the way that uh, ingenious, indigenous people think and work and lifting them to lead us uh, in these times uh, as, as, it, as historic, you know, like the Hokalea team that sailed a Polynesian uh, vessel around the world. Think of the movie Moana. This capability is to be somewhere in the middle of the ocean and still know where to go with no instruments. And just extraordinary things that we we have at our fingertips if we would just notice each other and help each other more rather than kind of stay with these stereotyping um, and extractive colonial ways that we can let go and uh, make a thing of the past. Megan, I love everything you say. I'm fully 100% behind and I think it's really important that you're doing this work. I have two more questions. First of all, what do you wish your legacy to be? Oh, I don't know. I uh, just... There's an incredible young leader named Chintescott Martinez, and I was listening to a cool poem that he said, and uh, he's talking about change, and he says, I don't speak for all of us, I speak as one of us. And I love that, that, that we can be networked in an ecosystem, um, and I can be part of, part of instigating together with everybody that's, uh, you know, we are connected, and we do see the earth, you know, on our island, and how do we how do we ex really get the respect um, that everyone deserves? Um, that new fun little movie is a beautiful movie from Disney called Soul. 
Mm. You know, which just shares that you don't have to be a human doing, you can be a human being. Um, and I think the pandemic has taught us a lot about structural inequalities and how we probably could reprioritize problems. And we have, you know, I think about the opportunity to work in the US government. It's so wealthy and it's so dusty because it's hundreds of years old. And so we just have to remake it in the image, the inclusive image, the inclusive future of work, the inclusive future of society, the wise community with the smart city that's working together. We can do things like that and we can use history to look at heroes, even if they got evaporated and relift their story to see better what the future can be. That's the thing we don't do enough of looking back. We so focus on looking forward, but there's so many lessons looking back. Yeah, Talking both hard lessons about horrific things that went on that need to never happen again if we can achieve that, as well as twin things that twinkle at us. Like I've recently seen that Eliza Hamilton, you know Hamilton the musical, mm. that Eliza's a bit more powerful than she appears on stage and she actually spoke Mohawk and she was inducted in the Onondaga tribes and and she worked with her father. And so the Haudenosaunee Iroquois and the Great Law of Peace is really part of the basis of the US Constitution and the federalism that Eliza was part of writing with her husband and the Washington's farewells of, can we see the founding mothers and fathers, not just the fathers? Can we see both? Because we love both. And can we also see the people who influenced them and that a lot of the architecture came from the Native Americans for our country? It's so fascinating. I think like, you know, one thing I petitioned for here actually in the UK was to have black history taught in schools. And I think, you know, like we just said a minute ago, education is so important. It really shapes the child into the adult. And yet there's so much missing from the curriculum. But I, I believe in things are changing. I hope they're changing. I really believe they are. My last question for you is looking back on your life, what's one piece of advice you'd offer a younger Megan? Huh. Um, I was really lucky that my parents really instilled a lot of confidence in us to just be ourselves. And there was this moment uh, that a friend of mine ran into Grace Hopper at the airport. Grace Hopper invented coding languages. And people told her that was a dumb idea to like program in human languages instead of in machine code. And she's like, no, I think it could broaden participation. And she said, don't let them tell you you're wrong if you're not. And I think that sometimes we get an intuition like our gut is very important in life in, in addition to our brain. And that, that you know, when your gut tells you things, uh, like it's so that you have, everyone has a lot to bring. And so it's very important to maintain confidence, especially for people who are not having as much voice in society to work together, to have the confidence and, and that maybe the priorities that have been ingrained in society aren't the right ones all the time. Um, and so that wonderful chance to be mentored, you know, with those general magic colleagues who were so tremendous, you know, like looking around and being part of these great adventures, whether it's our solar car race or, or doing things highly impactful with President Obama. This is all apprentice journey master uh, kind of paths and that, that the mastery comes from um, learning and collaborating with each other. And so it's something I think I found, but I always have to continue to remind myself to have the confidence um, to push on the things that I see or that I could see others see and help them. Um, that's really important to bring into the world, especially those who are, are less resourced and help those who have great resource 
who might not have a lived experience uh, gain their empathy because they actually, when you can get to people, most of them would love to work on the hard problems in the world and include people. Um, they just didn't know. And so the more we can have them see and then push on them to care and then get the systems to care because systems can be quite cruel. Um, and AI systems are gonna be very cruel and very discriminatory if we can't get ahead of them. So this is really urgent for all of us. Megan, thank you so much. I've enjoyed this thoroughly. I actually would like you know to go on an hour longer, but I don't wanna hold you up. Thank you so much for your time today. Thanks. And uh, thanks for doing this series with everybody. Thanks so much for listening to my interview with Megan Smith. What I love about Megan is the way she centers humanity at the core of her work. And if you look back at her tech career, this has been true at each juncture, from working at Apple to General Magic, Google to CTO of America, and now at Shift7. She brings people together to find technological solutions to societal issues. And I wondered what it would be like if we had more people like Megan as navigators in tech. One story she mentioned in the interview was that of the Hokalea, a Polynesian double-hulled voyaging canoe, which is known for her voyages which are completed exclusively using Polynesian navigation techniques, such as observing the stars, ocean, winds, birds and other signs of nature as mapping points for direction. Many of those trips were navigated by Nainara Thompson, a native Hawaiian navigator and the president of the Polynesian Voyaging Society. When doing my research about the Hokalea, I found a wonderful quote from Nainawa, which I wanted to share with you, because I think it sums up how Megan works and how it could be a North Star for those of us in tech. The quote is this, when people come together around common vision, they can accomplish great things. We need the instruments that pull our people together, not apart. <laughs>